With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast, and here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Greetings, friends. The Tennis.com podcast with myself, Ed McGrogan, and Steve Tigner enters the month of December. Uh, we're, we are mercifully, in my opinion, at the, at the offseason, the pretty laughable offseason, but I know we've had this, this talk before, uh, but we're here. I, I, for one, will enjoy it and um, try to muster the anticipation for about matches that start about four weeks from now. I know that's kind of a rather dour look at everything, Steve, but you and I have had this talk before about really, I, I, I think tennis doing itself, its fans, its players, its disservice, that, you know, what what is this off season is really you know, more or less just just a short, brief break more than anything of substance. And I, 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 you know, when I'm on Twitter, I talk with people about this too. It's It does divide opinion. Though. A lot of people do enjoy the pretty much 11-month schedule of the game. Uh, I think I think otherwise, but it, it's kind of an annual talking point. Yeah, I agree with you. I think, you know, the players, um, from the player's standpoint, they probably, you know, most of them would probably want to just play all year. That's this is this is what they do. This is how they make money. But from a standpoint of the sport and fans, I think it's better to have a break and more than a month. I mean, it was it used to be even less. It used to be three weeks. We've gotten it to a month. That feels like you know that feels like a big accomplishment in a way. Yeah, um, and you know it, it does segue into a point we were going to get to a little later in the podcast, but it makes sense now. Um, you know, we see in December. This is exhibition time. Uh, there's over the past couple of years, there's been a few leagues, if you want to call it that, really kind of multi-week um, extended uh, little little gatherings of players. The, the most prominent would be the International Tennis Premier League, uh, which takes place over in Asia. Uh, it was announced today that, that Novak Djokovic is passing on that and all the, the lucre that, that comes along with that. But, you know, cl- I think there's no other way to look at that than a very smart and sensible decision considering all the matches he has played and really just, I think, taking taking this time of year to do what makes the most sense. I know that these are not, you know, these events and these matches are not going to be five-set wars of attrition that we see at the slams and you know to the counter of that most of the top players are playing in these events but, but I feel like the travel that comes along with it and really just the the time that could be used simply put even just to practice if you want to be playing I think players you know they miss out on that time with the schedules and the demands of the year I think it's a smart call by Djokovic and 
I do. I can understand why players can't say no to the money that comes with this, but you know, it goes back to the point I just made earlier. Yeah, players and their agents can't say no to the money. Right, right, right. Agents get a bigger cut of the exhibition money than they do prize money. Um, but I agree that Djokovic, you know, is doing the right thing. Um, this season was a little longer for him. He started it a little earlier than usual in in Doha, and he finished. You know, he's won the the um, World Tour final the last four last four years. But this was really the I feel like the longest you know test for him. He really. I feel like he needed and really wanted to finish out a great year the way it should be finished by winning all of the events at the end, and he did. And that you really felt like he was starting to to waver a little in the first match that he played Federer at the in, at um in London, and then you know he really had you know he really made sure that he he closed out the season. But you also got a feeling he was really relieved to get it over. It was there was pressure right until the end, um, so I can see why. He would just want to, to, you know, leave it behind for the moment. Yeah, and it's important to remember that 2016 is going to be a, you know, an even a busy year for everyone. At least, you know, when it comes to the uh, upper tier of players and, and really the middle tier too, because it's an Olympic year, that falls always really right in the middle of the busiest time of year. It, it's going to fall in between the Canada and Cincinnati. Uh, Masters events and you know obviously you're coming off of the French Wimbledon uh, run leading up to the U.S. Open it's a very it's gonna be a very dense summer for tennis you're gonna you know people who want tennis are gonna get a lot of it uh, next year and and the you know the Olympics have been have given us some really you know great matches over the time over the years of course and uh, and that's just gonna add to what players have going on next year um you know, in a way that that brings me to our original talking point, which was the Davis Cup, and obviously that's another international competition. Uh, Britain wins it in the final over Belgium. Um, you know, not unexpectedly by three-one score, and of course it was a team event. Uh, but really, almost more than most years, you could say that this boiled down to just to just one player, Andy Murray, and you know, he goes 8-0 and in singles over the year. He goes 11-0 and combined with his doubles matches. And I think overall, it, it was a good, it was a good, I think, way to really recognize, remember, acknowledge, you know, what a great year Murray had because I think a lot of it was overshadowed by, of course, Djokovic, but also Federer's really renaissance and also, you know, the really the questions of Nadal that dogged him all year. I think Murray's year really did get a little bit lost in the shuffle. Yeah, you know, you sort of forget that he finished number two. Federer may have had the second best season getting to the Wimbledon and Open Finals and beating Murray, winning all his matches against Murray. But, you know, Murray finished number two outside of uh, Federer and Djokovic. He was um, somewhere around 70 and six. Uh, he didn't win any of the big ones he wanted he couldn't beat Djokovic and Federer when it mattered um so to get this is a I think it's a does you know like you said it's it um it was deserved and it sort of showed that uh you know he you know outside of those two guys he really had you know he really had the next best year and he, he also elevated himself to up with the other big guys in the big four by winning a Davis Cup they all have one all the top players 
of the Open era, virtually all of them have have at least one Davis Cup, and now Murray's there, sort of cementing his place with those guys. He he did it himself. You know, there's nobody has been more of a one man show in Davis Cup. The only guy to win eleven live live matches in a season. He was only not a part. He, there was only one match that Great Britain won that he wasn't a part of. Yeah, and I think this is a little bit, you know, the final in particular, a little bit emblematic of Murray's, uh, you know, I think improvements across all surfaces to this was held on clay. Murray, over the past few years, has really actually developed into a, one of the strongest clay court players in the game. He is he is an all-court player by now. Um, you know, I'm pretty, I'm actually pretty bullish on where Murray goes from here. I just think that... Uh, I think this was a, a very strong, positive year for him. Uh, obviously, with the numbers getting past, um, you know, some injury problems of previous years. You know, the guy has beaten Novak Djokovic in Grand Slam finals before. It's it it is hard sometimes to see to kind of declare Murray as maybe a pick to win a match, but it you know a bit a match of that significance, but. But he's done it before against, uh, you know, really the highest quality opponent you can have at this point. Um, you know, overall, I, I do come away from this year and thinking ahead to next year, you know, pretty highly of Murray. And I would, I would, in a way, be somewhat disappointed if he doesn't build on this in some way. But of course, you know, someone like Djokovic is really, he's going to have to play a part in that happening as well. And it depends on, you know, the competition. Yeah, I think from a you know mental psychological standpoint, there's a lot he can learn from from the way he played in Davis Cup. Just that sort of sense of urgency to not let him not let his emotions get the best of him. To use that those emotions, if he could ever bring himself to to do that when he plays when he's not playing for his country, it would make a huge difference. Um, but I'm a little less uh, optimistic for him. Not you know, there's the Djokovic and Federer thing, which he knows and has said he needs to. He needs to beat those guys, but also I don't know if I would pick him in any big match against now against Rafa or or Vavrinka. You know he lost to both of them at World Tour final. That doesn't mean that it's always going to happen. But he, I think he struggles against those two guys too. He doesn't have a you know he, his record obviously is bad against Nadal, and I feel like Stan has almost he hasn't passed him by in in, in terms of consistency in his ranking. But he but when you put them head to head I think a lot of people you know I think you would pick Stan at, you know probably more than 50% of the time so so you know Mur- you know there definitely up you know there's definitely great things for Murray but there's other people who were who were also playing better yeah I mean it's one of those who, you know who would you have playing for your life type of deal and I guess if you make that list you can you can definitely make the case that Murray is still not uh you know the one you'd want to put your put everything on the line for, but um, and I, you know, you actually had a good point there about. I was going to ask, you know, what what has Murray, what did Murray do so well over this Davis Cup run to get this flawless record? You know, we we've mentioned about what Davis Cup does to to players, how how play in this competition can vary from play during the, the the tour schedule and I think you had a pretty good point about about really sort of the the focus that that Murray brought into these matches I think and I think you've you touched on this in your piece that 
you know, there was really no safety net for Britain overall if Murray didn't come through. I mean, Belgium was certainly capable of 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 taking advantage of really any slip up that that Murray had along the way here. And I think, you know, to kind of internalize that and to and to really have the urgency and the execution in the matches you know, from singles to doubles all across the globe on, on a variety of surfaces. And I think once Murray, you know, really sort of understood that that Britain had the opportunity to, uh, and I think a pretty rare opportunity when you consider really their their depth across as compared to other teams. Uh, but it became apparent that, that they had a chance to win this entire competition and, uh, and really just very good credit to him for doing that i think the biggest difference uh was was like i said was mental with him was each time you saw him be get challenged or have struggle a little he would be agitated the way he usually is but it would never um but it always was he always channeled that energy always it it was always used in a positive way in, in some way even though even if he was ranting and raving in his usual way it was he would he would have a struggle for a moment and then he would play his best tennis so he he would respond he used that emotion as a way to respond to a to a challenge that's not always the way he is obviously um on tour he can really end up distracting himself and even exhausting himself and and uh with with those emotional outbursts but you know if that's that's something it's obviously easier said than done to transfer that over to your regular tour matches, but I think that was the big difference. He felt like he felt like I'm playing for somebody else. Like I can't, I'm not going to throw it away. These I can't throw these matches away on on being you know getting angry, and, right. and that was the difference. I think. Yeah, you know, of all these of all these Davis Cup matches, not you know not too many come to mind that you know are, I'm going to remember many many years down the road and and. And we're going to be actually taking a look in the next two weeks over the best matches of of the tennis year among both tours. You do, and this you do an annual top ten list. Your your gift to everyone each December, uh, looking at the ATP at the WTA from January to November, and and seeing what you know what are the matches that we're going to take away from this year. Uh, as the best, you know, the highest quality, the most significant um, things of that, adjectives of that nature. But uh, you know, when when you and I were just talking before this going going down the line, one thing that that struck us was, and I think this is this is sort of a, a departure from previous years, uh, is that this was really I think a better year for for the women's game in terms of memorable contests highest quality you know i think you can chalk a lot of that up to just how good djokovic was in the men's tour uh but i think this was a this was a great year overall for the women's game yeah as far as matches i mean serena as dominant as she was record-wise she played a lot of great matches she played you know you have to put her down as as playing a few of the best matches of the year um against azarenka at wimbledon the big match against vinci at the Open match against Tether Watson at Wimbledon, Azarenka a couple other times in Madrid and um, at the French Open. Uh, so yeah, you feel like yeah, Djokovic. You know there weren't many 
great. The big matches on the men's side was, you know, pretty much Djokovic won some good matches, but none of them, he didn't really let them become epics. But whereas Serena played a lot of, had to get herself out of a lot of really excellent matches. So you feel like, those, you know, the, the memorable moments were more on the women's side this year, which has, you know, in the past few years, it's been more on the men's side, I think. Yeah, and, you know, looking back, we talk, we we look at really, even when Djokovic ha- has been defeated this past year, those were, Federer accounted for half of those losses. They were all in straight sets. Um, you have a, you know, Ivo Karlovic win way back when, in early January. And, you know, the, the Djokovic-Federer finals, which, you know, I think obviously had really the most buzz around them. Uh, they're both, uh, you know, both both of them were really neutralized by really just how good Djokovic was, and we did not see the Federer that we saw leading up to those matches um, as dominant as he was in Wimbledon in the semis against Murray and at the Open um, against Wawrinka. We, we just didn't see that in those two matches. Um, the men, you know, the men's match that that I will certainly take away from this year was was just so unexpected and how it how it turned out was you know the the Nadal Fanini match at the open where uh, Rafa for the first time in his career goes from two sets up loses in a major and two sets in a break actually and just you know that one as well I think you just had the the crowd element to it which in invariably in these lists I think the the atmosphere and the audience plays a part in, in really determining how you know how we remember a match. Yeah, that was you know had to be the most memorable of the U.S. Open and maybe the most memorable men's match for, like you said, for Rafa's loss and also just the level that Fognini got to. Um, that was you know nobody really seen him play like that before and and the uh, yeah and the scene and the moment the night match at the U.S. Open it really felt like. You reminded what makes the U.S. Open special as an event. Um, so yeah, that 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 one's pretty much guaranteed to be on the list. Yeah, and uh, like I said, we'll we will reveal those lists over the next two weeks, starting starting next Monday. Um, I suppose if there are any matches, especially under the radar matches that that would qualify and would uh, you know would be of interest, you can tweet either of us and and remind us of them there's you know there are some good sort of ones that, that at first glance you don't think of Gasquet or Rinka at Wimbledon was a very strong another great Wimbledon match um the semi-final between Radwanska and Muguruza um you know before the uh the Serena Muguruza final there there's quite a bit you know that you that there is to pour over, you know, from from such a long time, such a so many matches really overall that uh, it's. I mean, it has to be a challenge. You've done this for for quite a few years, and it's. Uh, I think you probably always worry about forgetting one that's not on there. Yeah, to to reduce all the men's and women's to ten and mix them together, it's not the easiest. Uh, you know, you actually, you know, you end up leaving behind a lot of a lot of great ones, a lot of ones maybe you thought belonged on the list but um but you know it's i think it's fun to put them together the men's and women's not separate them to you know sort of consider them side by side and, and rank them as one uh you know I, I i think that makes it interesting and sort of gives you a, 
gives you a feel for how much there is in the sport of tennis over the course of a year. Yes, absolutely. Um, so we will uh, we'll look forward to that, and we will re- we will uh, bring back the podcast. Uh, once we get going a little bit further on the uh, on the off season news and happenings, this is this is a time where we'll we'll hear a little bit more. Coaching changes tend to take place this time of year. Uh, it gets ramped up pretty quickly, as you as you all know by now. So. Until then, this is Ed McGrogan for Steve Tigner on the Tennis.com podcast. You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.